All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Can You Teach Me That? My name is Martin Clausen. And I'm Neil Drought. And today we have the pleasure of having Colleen Sodana with us. And Colleen has uh, started her career in electrical design and has since made a, quite a big change into psychotherapy, where you focus on mindset and rewiring the brain. Um, before we get started, Colleen, I always have a, a kind of question to get a bit of an insight into uh, your personality and a bit about how you think, and that's going to paint the picture of why you answer the way you do as we proceed. So uh, I know you didn't get this one up front, but are you, uh, are you ready to, uh, to get going? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. So um, if you could live in any movie, book, or TV series, which one would it be? Oh, um... <laughs> I think just off the top of my head, I wouldn't mind living in, have you seen uh, Limitless with, um, oh, I can't remember what his name is, but. Um, it's in the movie, yeah, with uh, yeah, the movie, Bradley Cooper. Uh, Bradley Cooper, yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, having a bit of that. But wait <laughs> a minute, of, so he takes a drug, doesn't he? He does, but I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to take the drug, but just the experience um, of having that sort of, that, that, that sort of limitless um, uh, experience and funny enough that 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 is part of um you know how I've named my, not my business but my group and everything is about being limitless okay so yeah. what's the name of the group I'm going to lead you right into that yeah it's um mindset hacks for a limitless life and uh, and actually it was inspired by that whole day of that we can sort of like you know um become almost superhuman you know we do have the power within us to to just not accept um where we are in life we can change it Awesome. All right. We're going to ask you more. Yeah, Neil. Yeah. I just wanted to say that the series that follows on from it is really good as well. If you yeah. Yeah. It. No, it is. It's really good. The whole yeah. thing's great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really good. Um, okay. Well, so Colleen, before we dive into that, because I will, we will be diving into that. Can you give us some sort of insight into what is it that you like doing around like your hobbies and passions outside of the business and what you do? Like what are some unique things that we wouldn't necessarily be able to, to seek out on the internet about you? Yeah, so I quite like, I'm quite into sort of um, uh, healthy living. So I quite like, um, you know, uh, sort of, well, firstly, I'm, I'm eat plant-based. So I'm, I'm, I am I'm don't really like to say vegan, I prefer plant-based. Um, so that, and I'm kind of quite into sort of detox and healthy living and stuff like that. So a lot of my spare time, I'm also sort of um, learning and, and, and reading about nutrition and, and that type of thing. Um, and so that's another sort of real big interest of mine. And I do think the two things go quite hand in hand. You, ha you have a healthy mind, healthy body, um, and it's also what you're putting into it. Um, you know, so yeah, that's a big interest of mine. And I quite enjoy sort of, you know, meditation. I enjoy sort of, um, you know, sort of tribal music. So, um, you know, putting on some drumming and, and dancing to that. So, yeah. yeah, that type of thing. Sounds fun. I love it. <laughs> um, so the floor is yours now. If you don't mind taking us a little bit back in time of yeah. how you kind of started your career, also a bit about probably what, the, it seems like, as I said earlier, <coughs> there's a big shift in, in what you did then and what you do now. So maybe talk us through what you used to do and what the kind of turning point was for you that, that made you decide to, uh, to change your career and then explain please of what it is you do now. Yeah. Okay, sure. So, um, so my first career was um, in electrical design engineering, working for a electricity company. Um, and so I would do the design on substations and on cable networks. 
Um, and I kind of found, I mean, I enjoyed it. There were parts of that job that I actually still do miss because I'm quite a detail oriented person mm -hmm. and I quite miss design in some ways. Um, but I found that uh, for me, it was my career almost chose me. I, I kind of landed up doing this and it's sort of like you almost wake up one day and go, how did I actually get here? How, how did I, you know, I, I sound like that, that talking head song, don't I? But I, you know, you do wake up sometimes you think how, how, how did this happen? You know, I've landed in this career um, and I didn't necessarily choose it. It's kind of, you know, life just takes you sometimes. And I kind of always wanted to do something that was working with people um, and giving back and, and being of some sort of service. And as I got older, that definitely became more and more something that I wanted to do um, of just being of service to others and helping people uh, progress in, in life. And I kind of thought I'd always been very interested in psychology anyway. And, um, and so it was something I was always reading about. Um, and so I thought it was like a natural it, it sort of um, step for me to sort of perhaps look at a career in that it would be helping people um, and being of service. Uh, and, and, and also I, I always love to learn. So it was initially when I started doing it, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be a big career change I thought oh well I'm just interested in this and I started studying a bit because the training I did you didn't have to do it all you didn't have to sign up and say okay right I'm doing three years you could do it in, in pieces and so I thought well I'll just sign up to some of the foundation stuff and see how it is and I really loved it um, and the the uh, approach to psychotherapy that I'm trained in um, it's it's a very practical, it's quite new. It's only been around probably about 20 years. The founders are Irish and English. And um, it's only been around about 20 years, but it's very practical. So it's it's based in all the human sciences. There's a lot of neuroscience, evolutionary science. So it's not just about psychology. It's looking at how we are as, um, what do we already know about the human condition? Um, and working from there you know what do we need as a living organism if you really break it down what do, what do we need in order to thrive you know rather than looking at sort of um psychoanalysis and stuff like that, so just it's, it's looking at it really practically what do we know and what do we need as a human being to to thrive and coming from that point of view and also then looking very much about how the brain works so what is happening when you have a panic attack? What is happening with anxiety, with trauma? What's happening in the brain? And sort of understanding it from that point. And, and quite often when you explain to people actually what's happening to, happening to them um, with when they're having their panic attack, they kind of can feel that they own it a little bit more. They can understand what's happening inside their body. So they feel a little bit more in control of it because they understand the process. And so that's a huge part of it. And that's why I was attracted to this particular approach so much because of my background of being coming from engineering and stuff, which is all very practical. It's all about solution, solutions yeah. and finding solutions. I found that this, it just, it just, it just woke me up. I was just, it really resonated with me on such a deep level that I thought this is so practical. It's not, well, maybe it's this, this look, you know, it, it, it's not about, um, it's not about sort of, uh, like psychoanalysis is quite about digging deep into your past and trying to find stuff which is 
not necessarily helpful, I don't think. Um, and this is not about that at all. It's really looking forward and it's looking for solutions, which is where I'm coming from. I'm coming from a solution-focused, you know, old job, you know. So that's why it appealed to me so much. Um, yeah, and I've really loved, loved it. So if, if we are to go back a little bit, actually, yeah. before you went into electrical design, how did you... How at what early age did you start studying that and decided like this is the route I'm gonna go with my career from now? And then was there something that happened as you was work as you were working there that kind of was like as you now mentioned like panic attacks and these things? Was there something where you decided like enough? Like I need to make a, a major change here. But like yeah, if you can start with the first part of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So so how I got into electrical yeah. tech. So so um, when I was in South Africa, I my first job leaving school. My first job was um, I went and I worked for the in, in Cape Town. The um, electricity network is owned by the, the council or the government. Okay, yeah. How it used to be, obviously, in the UK as well. Um, and so I went. My first job leaving school was I went and I did a a draftsman's course. So I, that's what I did, but it was sort of across all disciplines, civil, civil mm-hmm. drafting, um, you know, electrical, all of it. So I just got a basic sort of um, course in sort of doing, um, back then it was drafting on a drafting board, you know, uh, later on, you know, they, they get brought out software to be able to do it digitally, um, AutoCAD and MicroStation and software like that. But back then there wasn't, software. So I went and I did a manual course of learning how to draft. And so that's how I started as a, as a draftsman or, per, or draft person. And then I went and my first job was happened to be in the electricity department. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't necessarily choose this as the job I got. Yeah. And so anyway, so I did that and I started doing sort of, it was all sort of low voltage sort of stuff. And, and, and I picked it up quite well. And then I did some training. They sent me to college to do some training. And so I did that. I did that for about, it was about two years. And then I decided to, that I, I just thought there was more to the world and I wanted to get out and see, see the world. And, and I came over to the UK in, in 1997. And that is when South Africa had just rejoined the Commonwealth. And so we were allowed as South Africans to come over and do like a two-year work visa. I mean, they've scrapped that now. You can't, I don't think you can do it anymore, but you could then. And so I thought, that's it. We've rejoined the Commonwealth. I'm I'm going up, I'm going to go see a bit of London and I'm going to go see the UK and I want to travel. And so I did that. And then when I got here, I was very lucky. I mean, I must say, I I'm so fortunate and, and grateful to to the UK for what, what what I have been able to do while I'm here because I don't think I would have been given the same opportunities that I was here. And so my first job that I got was um, in a it, it do it was for Mitsubishi Electric and it was doing um, it was it was doing substation t- design but but it's it's I mean you're talking sort of like the, the really high voltage stuff and so I really wasn't actually that qualified for that I hadn't done anything and they said okay well we'll trial you for three months and see if you can pick it up and if you can pick it up we'll you know put you on the same salary as the rest and we'll keep you and so I got the job and I got through the trial and I picked it up because it was it's quite niche the the work and I picked it up and I seem to be able to do it quite well so that's what I'm saying it's kind of like it's just I I haven't chosen this stuff it's just come to me 
Um, and so, and from there afterwards, I then got a job with um, London Electricity and I was just able to do it. And I, and I did receive some more training. Um, and I think sometimes for me in my life, I've kind of always felt a little bit like a charlatan because I ended up doing a job which you really needed to have a, quite a lot of, quite a lot of, um, I suppose like a, quite a big degree behind you. And I never got oh, yeah. that. And everybody I was working with did. And so quite often I felt a little bit, I mean, it's beyond sort of, um, imposter syndrome you know I often felt like I really yeah. shouldn't be there and everybody just assumed besides of course the people that employed me assumed that I was I had a certain level of of um, education with it and I and actually I didn't I had received quite a bit of training but I but I didn't so there was always that part as well that I just felt I needed to I don't know like I, I needed to do more so either I needed to make the decision for my own peace of mind that I go and actually get better qualified formally in what I was doing and go and actually do a formal degree or actually leave it and go do something else. And I thought, well, my heart's not in there anyway. So that's when I decided, I took the decision that actually I needed to go and do what I really wanted to do. And, yeah. and you know, as much as this career had been wonderful <clears> and I had been given amazing opportunities, um, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. How quick was the turnaround then? If yeah. you don't, like, so how quick from you started having these these thoughts to actually taking the plunge? Um, yeah, I've been having the thought to tell you the truth for quite a few years mm -hmm. of okay. thinking, what should I do? How should I do it? Uh, I, I knew that I was feeling because I really wanted to get on top of this feeling of feeling a bit like a charlatan. So yeah. I knew I needed to make a decision. Either I'm going to stick with it, and I'm going to. Um, go and commit and go and, and get, get the degree. It was not, I mean, they didn't care. I mean, I was absolutely fine. It wasn't me. It was me that had the issue. Um, and so I knew I had to make a decision. And I thought, well, why am I doing that? Why am I going to invest more of myself into this? Mm -hmm. But it did take quite a, quite a few years of sort of playing with it and not really knowing what I should do um, before I actually made the decision. And And then it was more sort of, well, let me just try these foundation courses in the psychotherapy that I was doing and see if I like it. Um, and I really did. I loved it. And I thought, gosh, this is actually what I really should be doing and, and what I want to be doing. Yeah. So did you wait till you're completely qualified until you decided to actually pack in your job and work for yourself? Or? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I, I was not quite qualified, almost qualified because I'd started doing it. Um, it was something that I could do part time. Um, but the final bits, I, I wasn't quite qualified before I left. So it was probably about a year, yeah, just under a year before I was fully qualified. And um, basically what happened was the last project I worked on um, in, in electrical design engineering was for the um, Queen Elizabeth uh, Olympic Park. So it was doing all the design work, the substations and all the network that needed to go on the Olympic Park. And so it was such an amazing project. I'd been based on the Olympic Park for seven years. I saw it being built around me. It was an incredible project and an amazing team to, to, to work with. And I thought, you're never going to beat that. I might as well just go out on a high. That, that being my last project. Um, and just let it be and so I obviously the Olympics was in 2012 and then I stayed for for one extra year to do some legacy work and then um and then I left and so 
yeah, and then I was qualified in 2014. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so take us through, so now it seems like you're in what you're doing now. So what if you, in layman terms, can try to take through, because I, I love these kind of things about success, growth, and all the, the keywords that I saw that you, you've written to me. So what, what is it specifically? What, what's the day looking like now? Like what, what can we, if we were clients of yours, what would that look like? Yeah, so um, I, see, I see probably about, it depends on, um, depends on my day really but I probably see about three to four clients a day um and so I mean it depends on what people you know it's very much led about what someone wants I'm not sort of you know to what they want to work on um so at the moment because it is is mostly psychotherapy that I'm 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 doing um it's very much about you know what people come for come they come for anxiety they come for feelings of and yes there's a lot of feelings of um I just don't feel my life is working. Can you help me? You know, they, so there's kind of a lot. It doesn't have to be all depression and stuff like that. Sometimes it really is about um, how do I go about making a more content, fulfilled life for myself. I just feel all the time that life is a bit, a bit dull, or I'm not sort of achieving. So you know, um, it, 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 my day really varies about who is coming through my door of what I'm doing, but. Um, Ultimately, it, it still comes down to basically the main crux of it is, is understanding what makes us fulfilled as human beings. And it's about emotional nutrition. So just as much as we need physical nutrition to thrive and to survive, um, we also need emotional nutrition. And so it's very much helping people. Um, find out where they're lacking certain things in their life uh, for if their emotional needs and where they're not, not getting it properly. Um, and how do we go about that? And that does also include things, you know, like, um, you know, fulfillment and how do you achieve fulfillment and, and, and stuff. But it's also sort of, you know, it's other things like um, feeling in control. Have you got autonomy in your life? You know, how do you go about that? You know, you might... You know, or, or do you feel that you're not in a you're not secure? Like maybe you go to work and you have a manager that is slightly bullyish towards you. You know, so it's looking at all the aspects of what of of your life and the emotional needs that perhaps aren't being met, and how do we go and get those met for you well? Um, and sometimes, obviously, it's you know that that's the in its simplest term but obviously if someone's coming through my door and actually they've also experienced a lot of trauma in their life then you really have to deal with that first before you can help them with getting their emotional needs met because that in itself will stop them getting their emotional needs met because they, they they're, they're still holding on to trauma so it it very it, it really does vary depending on who's coming through my door and what they want and that can change on a weekly daily basis so if we go back then a little bit again, sorry for jumping back and forth, but yeah. it's when you say something, I, I then I, I, I get reminded of something. So when you started this, how did you go about actually entering such a new business, which is now into consultancy and somewhat of a different field of, of what you were coming from? How did you go about actually creating this? And how did you get your, how did you get your first client? What kind of? Yeah, so I mean, there's... Um, there's a lot of, you know, obviously um, registers that you can belong to. 
And so I got myself registered on all the official registers where you could possibly get registered. I also did do things which um, is quite old fashioned in a way, but I did um, print out leaflets and I did leave them all around locally, you know, and I actually did initially, I don't really do that now because I don't kind of need to, but initially um, it actually did bring in a lot of, a lot of clients because it was coffee shops. It was um, up in all the local sort of businesses that allowed you to put sort of flyers or things up in their windows. And I did. And, and I thought, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting much, but actually I did get quite a bit of business. I also did hire um, someone to do some um, dropping through letterboxes for me. Um, And so, I mean, they're quite old fashioned ways of of marketing, but actually it did work because, you know, um, you know, it's, it's people want, especially if you're going to come physically for therapy, it needs to be convenient. They either needs to be where they work, near where they work or near where they live. Um, and so it worked quite well because obviously, you know, people want convenience. So what was the leaflets? What, what did it say? What was the, because as you say, there it's varied. So I'm now curious about how did you pull the first ones in? What was the headlines? Yeah, so it was the, the first ones. I can't quite remember what I actually wrote because it was a while back now, but it was very much about sort of, um, you know, um, helping you with solutions, helping you with solutions and problem solving and, um, you know, um, achieving the things. You know, I I think I wrote something about, it was a little bit like questions. Have you experienced it? Are you experiencing it? It was a bit like that. So there was, I had a series of a few questions and then it was a little bit about me and how I could help if they were experiencing those problems. Um, so it was a bit like that in that format, some questions and then how I could help. Um, so yeah, and then, and then it just had a picture of me on it because they, that's what they always say that, you know, you, you want to be able to see the person yeah. as well so that you can feel more connected. So I did that. Um, I don't feel like I need, to, I haven't done that in a long time, uh, because once you get the first clients, um, then, you know, it becomes word of mouth. Um, I also used a service. Um, it's there's a there's a something I don't know. I think it's only in the UK. I'm not I'm not sure if it's anywhere else. But there's a service where it's called um, Bark.com. B-A-R-K, like a like bark like a dog. Yeah. And what happens is you put yourself on there um, in whatever service you are. So I put myself as a therapist, but you could be a plumber, you could be a painter, anything. And um, what it is, it, they you put yourself on and then um, people post jobs that they need. I'm looking for a painter. I'm looking for a therapist. And so it depends on, you know, what sector. And then you almost apply to them. So I did that for about the first year as well. And that was amazing. So you pay for each application. So someone puts a job up and I think, oh, they live near me. Uh, That sounds like something I can help. And then you write to them and apply. And obviously you pay whatever it was, a pound application. And then obviously if you get the job, great, you know, that's it. So I did that quite a lot. And I'd say out of every, I'd say every 12 people I wrote to, I probably got one. I probably got one out of 10 or 12. So um, that wasn't bad. And and that worked really well because I had so many referrals then from the people who came to me through that. Uh, so once again, I don't need to do that anymore either. I mean, we do much in terms of marketing at all now, except being on the registers. Yeah, um, that's good. The word of mouth for you is carrying its weight then. Yeah, 
So yeah. Neil, Neil, I know you had a question before, so I'm going to let you ask this one before you actually got on, Colleen. I, I feel like this is relevant now. Um, well, I think we're just discussing the um, difference between a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist. Oh, yes. Okay, well, I mean, a psychiatrist, well, there's three, isn't there? Psychologist, psychiatrist, and psychotherapist. So a, psych, a, 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 psych, a psychiatrist is a doctor who has then specialised in um, psychology, but they're medical doctor first and foremost. And so they are allowed to prescribe medication. I mean, this is certainly how it works in the UK. I'm not sure about anywhere else. Um, and so they're allowed to uh, uh, prescribe um, drugs, you know. Um, so, and then a psychologist is, is someone who's gone and done a psychology degree. And, I mean, you get different types of psychologists as well. And then they specialize in, um, you know, whatever type of psychology. Um, and then a psychotherapist is someone who has gone and studied it is a specific mm -hmm. approach to therapy. So you get different types of therapy. It's not, I mean, obviously there's psychology involved, but it's more about how, what the approach is. So there's, I mean, you might've heard of another therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is also, so that you wouldn't need to go and study, you wouldn't need a, to go and have a psychology degree. You can go and learn to become a cognitive behavioral therapist and then you are a CBT therapist. Um, and so you get different types of therapy, certainly in the UK, that people could go and train in and that is your qualification. You're qualified in that approach to therapy. There's Jessalt therapy, there's um, solution-focused therapy. I mean, there's tons. Um, and that is kind of half the problem is that actually there are so many, because actually to be a psychologist as well doesn't mean that you're a therapist. Just because you've studied psychology doesn't mean that you're a therapist either. You got, need to go and learn how to be a therapist. Mm. So, because you've just got a psychology degree, so it's yeah. different. Um, and so that is half the problem, um, certainly in the UK, is that there are just so many different approaches to therapy that it's actually a bit of a mess. Um, so the founders of uh, my approach to therapy, which is called hu the hu Human Givens Therapy, is um, it, they, they sort of looked at the mess and they thought, Let, let's sort of try and bring it all together. And so they've looked at all the, 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 the pieces or the components of a lot of different therapies and what they felt worked well um, and brought it all together into the into uh, one through plus they sort of created their own organizing idea around therapy um because things like cognitive behavioral therapy there's some amazing bits to it and if anybody's a cognitive behavioral therapist now they'll probably come and cut me down and want to <laughs> shoot me but there's a lot of things that aren't so great about it so it's very much cognitive behavioral therapy is very much as the name says you're dealing with cognition you're dealing with your thoughts mm -hmm. and um so it's about changing your thoughts and yes behaviors as well um but it's working with your basically the neocortex part of your brain which is your thinking brain and so you could never ever help anybody really with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, who has trauma because trauma doesn't work or it doesn't get lodged in that part of your brain. So trauma gets lodged in the unconscious part of your brain, which is um, the limbic system of where your flight and fight response gets triggered from. Mm -hmm. 
trauma and the pattern of trauma gets gets that's where you need to be working and so no amount of thinking or, or cognitive sort of um processes are going to help with that and so as much as it's it's a, it's amazing in many ways there's certain things that it's not so good at yeah. um and so it's looking at bringing all the different components together and you know doing a little bit of what's in front of you so you know you you you'd almost change your therapy in a way for who is sitting in front of you and what they're coming with. Um, so as I say, you know, this, the, 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 this approach is very much about looking at the brain and looking how um, we process information. And certainly it's, it's very sort of good at helping with trauma because it's, it's understanding um, the neuroscience of trauma and then working with techniques to help with that. So it's getting into that unconscious part of the brain. So Please. it's very, yeah, sorry. Nico. Sorry. Um, am I right in thinking that with the trauma side, especially, it's even harder to get into that if it's with, if the trauma was when you were younger than if when you're older? Um, no, not really. Mm. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's kind of, it doesn't matter if you were, at, you know, three years old or if it happened two years ago. Um, the techniques that we use and the way you know it's it it's it, it gets lodged in the brain is is pretty much the same and so kind of what happens with certainly with trauma is we understand that where it, you've got a little piece in your brain part of the uh, um the limbic system which is the, the part of your primitive brain and it's called the amygdala and that is where your flight and fight response gets triggered from and so what we understand from trauma is that the memory, in a way, gets lodged there, gets stuck there. And that's not where memory should be coming from. And they know this because when you put people in brain scans and you look at their brain and you say, OK, now think of the traumatic memory. The part of the brain that really gets activated is the amygdala. Now, no memory shouldn't be coming from that at all. Actually, what should be highlighted in the brain is like that mostly is the hippocampus. And memory comes from many places. But... A, a large part of it comes from the hippocampus and the hippocampus is about tagging memory and giving it context so it will sort of if something's happened to you it will then put it into the hippocampus and file it there in a way and go okay this was it was raining that day it was winter it was this day so it gives it it contextualizes the memory so the memory becomes it understands that it was in the past but what happens with trauma is it somehow gets lodged into the amygdala and it doesn't get contextualized into the hippocampus. And the amygdala only works in the present tense. And so it kind of thinks, even if it happened when you were four or five, that somehow the trauma is still happening, it's still occurring. And that's why people get PTSD, because it's almost as if it's you know reliving it, it's still there. Um, and also it becomes very difficult sometimes to recall especially when things are really tra traumatizing um, to recall what's happened to you in a, in a linear way, because it's, as I say, it's got no context. So that's why a lot of people who are talking about say, say a, a trauma where they were attacked or something, sometimes when they're recalling it, it sounds a bit all over the place. It doesn't make sense. So people say, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, it happens a lot. You, you know, with, say, a rape victim or whatever, when they're recalling the information, they say, well, the old story doesn't add up. 
but that's that's quite typical of trauma because it's not coming from the part of the brain which mm. works in a really nice linear way because it hasn't been put there. It's still stuck in the amygdala, which is all about the fear sense and, and triggering the flight and fight. And so you really have to find ways of helping the memory to be contextualized so that, it, that your brain understands that it's over and that it's in the past. Um, and so we you, we work with um, you know techniques to help that happen, but it's also about on a deeper level. Um, basically, the brain is a pattern matching organism, and basically, what happens is you've got two pathways of fear. So the first pathway, and this is a neural pathway, the first pathway is a bit. Um, not not inaccurate. It's, it's it's it gets you out of danger, but it, it it's fast. So it's it can be prone to making mistakes because it's all about just getting you out of danger as fast as possible. So the first pathway goes to your amygdala, and it pattern matches of what do I understand about what this is happening in front of me, or the smell, or the sound, or this feeling, or whatever. And it goes, oh, I've got a I've got a a, a, a pattern store that this is danger. And so it fires off the flight and fight response. What happens in a hundredth of a second later, it goes down the second pathway and up to your neocortex, which is giving you a more detailed analysis of the situation. And then you go, oh, no, it's not a snake. It's a stick. But by then you're hiding behind a tree. You know, you've already it's got you under the danger. Um, and so it does that. So in order to, to, to help you act really fast and then you think afterwards. Um, but because of that, it can be prone to mistakes. And if there isn't danger, well, your body's already panicking and you're already hyperventilating and you whatever. And that's how phobias work, you know, because phobias aren't logical. You go as much as you can think, you know, for you know, hours on end that you're not going to freak out when that, I don't know, the swimming pool appears in front of you or whatever it is, you, you end up doing it and your mm. body is reacting before your mind is going, what am I doing? because of going through the first pathway and then that's where it happens. So you need to get there first. You need to get to where the pattern match is happening to the danger. Um, and that's not happening in your neocortex. That's not happening in your thinking brain. So I, I, what I'm gathering from this as well, like I'm trying to get, catch up here. Uh, it's very much about like breaking beliefs to a degree, right? It's uh, of, of things that you've kind of convinced yourself now over time that this is the way you should be reacting when, when X happens, you just naturally go to Y. So do you sit and discuss this with the clients as far as as technical as you do there? Or is it more a sense of just talking to them as, as humans, uh, if you know what I mean in that sense, and not go that scientific about it? What's, what's the... The process that you can uh, yeah so no I, I i tend to actually really explain it i i have charts usually i have diagrams to explain it and really so i show them all the parts of the brain because when they can understand what is happening um they really can feel that they can be in more control of it when they understand that it's not really it's a perceived danger and it's mm. how the brain perceives it um and so it's very important i think for people to understand um the the, the neuroscience or not not necessarily the neuroscience but what the different components of their brain and how this mechanism works um because then when they do understand it they can feel um more in control of it and they know what's happening to them they go oh okay this is happening i know it's my 
you know, my pattern, like my amygdala is, is, is mm. you know, getting this wrong, what's perceiving as danger. I know there's no danger there. Um, but then we work on techniques on how to scramble all those patterns as well. But I do spend quite a lot of time explaining this stuff about how the brain works. And I do, I mean, as I say, I try and make it as simple as possible. I do have diagrams, I do have it, but it is important that they understand it. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes if people really don't want to know and they're just happy to do the techniques, but sometimes then it's, I think most people, I'd say 90% of people do want to know what's going on in their brain. Um, it does help. Um, some people are just, you know, I have had clients who just go, oh, just do the techniques. It doesn't matter. Okay. You know, I kind of explain it briefly and they go, oh, yeah, no, I'm, you know, just just do the techniques. But that's very few. Most most people like to um, like to know what's kind of going on. And so and now I have to be cheeky, right? Yeah. So as far as yourself, how in tune are you? Like, do you have any phobias things yourself where you don't have to counteract against yourself or where you have to study it for this long? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have had stuff um, that I've needed to work on because it's not necessarily, um, you know, obviously stuff, stuff from when I was younger, when I was doing my training, we did, we practiced so many of these techniques on each other that I got a lot of stuff done, uh, you know, from anything I was still holding from when I was younger. But there has been a few things. I was in a... Um, in a, in a, not a car accident, but I had a really weird experience on a motorway uh, a few years ago uh, where I had, had taken some antibiotics and I had a really adverse um, reaction to yeah. them. And I was driving on the M4 and I just felt as if like I was going to drive off the road and I was going to... Um, I was just going to crash the car. I felt like I like I was all lightheaded and I couldn't quite see properly. And it was this reaction to this antibiotics. And so I had to pull over. And it really sort of, because that was quite traumatizing. And also it's about sort of um, that piece of road being on the motorway. I found afterwards, um, because my um, my in-laws live in Wales. And so I, drive, I do go on the M4 quite a bit. And so... When the next time I had to drive it, every time I went on the M4, I felt really panicky, really trembly, because basically, as I say, it's when, when you are in any trauma situation, what happens is all that information, everything you were seeing, everything that you were smelling, and the more emotional and sort of panicky you are, the more it gets sort of sucked in into mm -hmm. sort of... So, everything you smelt, heard, so everything that came in through the senses, even if you consciously are not aware of the fact that it was slightly drizzling or there was a smell of, I don't know, uh, leaves burning, whatever, your amygdala takes it all in. And then the next time you're in that, it pattern matches going, oh, danger, this smell, this thing I'm seeing, I've got a pattern for this being dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'm going to fire off the flight and fight response. And so I had now a pattern match for the M4. Every time I went on it, my heart would start racing because it was pattern matching to this other mm -hmm. experience. And so I did, I, I mean, it's very difficult to do the techniques on yourself. So I did get a, a peer, one of my, my, my colleagues, um, to, to do it for me. And then that, and that, that was amazing. But I knew, thankfully, I also knew exactly what was happening to me and yeah. why it was happening. Um, even when it happened, I thought, oh God, I hope this doesn't get stored <laughs> that next time I come onto the M4, I'm going to freak out. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did freak out, you know. Okay. 
See, the reason I ask that is interesting. We had a neuroscientist who was focusing on pain, uh, specifically yeah. that was her PhD. And even though she was doing that, she was also kind of, she had back pains and overworked herself. So I'm, I'm always curious to hear now if you're actually able to, to use the, the skills in yourself, but that's cool to hear. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, but it's much more difficult to do some of the, something, some of the more technique-based stuff. It's, it's easier if someone does it, does it for you. Yeah. So what kind of most, like, what's the most common issue you handle? What walks in the door the most, would you say? I would say anxiety. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent anxiety. And then, and then with that, sometimes depression, sometimes the two go hand in hand because the anxiety, you know, ends up making you feel depressed because it's sort of, you, 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 you're living a half life because you feel you can't do as much. Mm -hmm. It also um, tends to affect people's sleep terribly. And then when they're not sleeping well, when you're not sleeping well, you end up depressed. So even if it doesn't start that way, sometimes it ends up people can get depression through anxiety, but anxiety hands down is the thing that, and you know, anything sort of, Anxiety and fear, you know, is and undoubtedly the most. Yeah. Um, so, so talking about the fear and the phobias, I was just wondering, because I think you said that the group you're part of started about 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, are they keeping up with the technology and things? Because I've seen a lot of stuff coming out with virtual reality um, and group using virtual reality for phobias or pain Uh, the the neurologist we spoke to they said she said that they had kids with burns in a ice skate virtual reality area to kind of help with the pain and things like that yes yeah no they definitely are they kind of because their whole thing is is that you know um it needs to be it needs to be almost like a living organism. You know, the therapy, the constantly needs to be updating, constantly needs, you know, you can't ever just be, this is what it is. And, 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 and it has to be evolving all the time. And so it, it, it is, but the way that those, um, that those uh, technology based type things work is really similar. You're doing the same thing in terms of um, how you are sort of, um, you're treating the brain, you know what I mean? You're teaching the brain a new pattern. And so I know I've also seen it with people with phobias where there will be, it will be like a little spider on the screen and then the the spider will be bigger and go bigger. So you're teaching the brain that actually the thing that you are seeing it, you know, um, you don't need to fire off the bites and fight. You don't need to get that panic. So you treat, you're teaching it a new bit of learning in a way. Um, and doing it really, really slowly. Um, but they ultimately, you're still kind of doing the same thing of what you're trying to achieve inside the brain, that is. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, these different ways Definitely. of getting it. Yeah. So in regards to if we are to touch on the the anxiety there, what is the, I know you, you, you've alluded to the fact that you're trying to rewire the brain for success more and having a, a kind of a different mindset about it. Um, yeah. What are some easy tips, perhaps, you could advise people that are suffering on anxiety? And I, I imagine anxiety in all shapes and forms, right? It could be social, it could be even... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, what I would say, a tip for someone who's experiencing anxiety um, is generally what happens is when you are anxious, we tend to over-breathe. 
And so even though you're not realizing it, you know, mm. you, when you see someone's having a panic attack, of course they're hyperventilating and they, you can see they're over breathing. But most of the time, anybody who has anxiety is, is over breathing in, in a way. And so it's, it's very much about being aware of your breath, slowing your breath down. But if ever you're in any certain circumstance where you feel particularly anxious, you must firstly, you know that you're probably over breathing. And then you can do something which is called 7-Eleven breathing. And so you breathe in for the count of seven and you breathe out for the count of 11. So I don't know if you know... Um, like the old fashioned thing when someone was having a panic, panic attack and they would give them a brown paper yeah, bag. Yeah. And so, you know, that would look not look so great if you're having a panic attack on the bus and, you know, you're in your, when you're meeting at work, as I said, with a brown paper bag. But this you can do without um, people knowing that you're doing it. You can do it really discreetly, the 7-Eleven breathing. And so the way the, the thing with the paper bag worked is when you over-breathe, as much as our body needs oxygen, our brain needs oxygen, everything needs oxygen to, to, to work, you're taking in actually too much oxygen. And so the way, um, the way it works is, is that you need CO2 to release the oxygen off the red blood cells in order for the oxygen to be utilized by the body. And so that's why the paper bag thing works well, because you're breathing in carbon dioxide and then it loosens the oxygen molecule, and then the oxygen can be used. So actually, even though you're over-breathing and taking in so much oxygen, you've been starved of oxygen. And so what the 7-Eleven breathing does is it balances the oxygen levels to the CO2 levels within your bloodstream, and so that you are, um, you know, you calm the body down. But also what it does is it, um, it allows the, the basically the emotional brain, which is where the flight or fight response gets triggered from, it calms that part of the brain down. And so when we are panicking or in any sort of stressful situation, um, it sends sort of inhibitory signals up to your thinking neocortex brain, because it's not about uh, complex thoughts, it's about taking action. And so this will help get that part of your brain online as well. So if you're ever feeling stressed in any situation, you, you, you know, you go in to do a presentation and your head goes blank, that's mm -hmm. why, mm -hmm. because it's stopped your neocortex thinking properly. Um, and so doing any way, you know, doing the seven rings to calm it down will bring that part of your brain back online. So it works really well. Plus the outbreath stimulates the relaxation response. And so there's sort of like it's a, it's a triple sort of whammy in a way of how it works. It's really simple. And people go, really, is that going to help me? I promise you, if you give it a go, yeah. it really does. But it's about taking the breath. You know, don't do 7-Eleven breathing and really shadow into your chest. It's about taking it deep so that you almost feel your, your tummy rising and falling. You know, it's taking it deep down. Um, and that works a treat. It really does. And so is it a case of with this year that you're, you're more about kind of treating the, um, in the instance of it, or if I were to go to you, Colleen, would it be a case that, of course, over time, I would not be feeling that way or you would minimize it to a degree like what's what's the what's a, a success criteria result from, from actually this yeah i mean it was certainly when it comes to sort of trauma and fears and stuff i mean we have a really good success rate on that um in actual fact um we work with the, the human given therapist work with a charity in the uk called ptsd resolution and we're the only type of therapist they 
they use because we have such a great success rate with, okay. with um, trauma-based stuff. Um, and so that's great. In terms of sort of wanting to rewire your brain, yeah. um, which is something I'm really focusing on, I'm taking that really online to sort of, you know, work on that in my group and stuff like that. That does take um, time, it takes effort, um, but it will happen because we know that the brain, they call it neuroplasticity. We know that the brain, no matter how young or old you are, it can always change. There was a time they thought the brain was fixed, but we know that's not true. Um, and so it does take a bit of effort, but you can wire the brain. And it is very much about um, where your attention is. So you, you, where your attention is, is what you will be getting. And so, you know, it, it's, it's about having the power to put your attention elsewhere. And then with that, you have the power for your neural firing to be different and then you can change the architecture of your brain. So it's it's if you're thinking about everything that can go wrong, um, you know, you're gonna be, or you're thinking about when you're at work, you're thinking about sort of um, how to take revenge on your boss and colleagues, you'll become an expert at revenge plots and not very good at, you know, running your project. Mm. So it is very much about being very aware of where your attention and your thoughts are and being, conscious so so consciously changing where your thoughts are so eventually it becomes a new habit of thinking because what happens is when you stop doing something or you stop thinking something or you stop a particular thing like maybe you were very very good at tennis once and you don't play anymore you become rusty and it's because those pathways in your brain when they don't get used eventually it gets mocked with a sort of a protein that at night what happens is when you sleep there's a process where all the stuff from the day that, you, that you've been experiencing goes and gets cleaned out and so if there's pathways that aren't being used very much eventually they get marked for deletion and so if you are thinking and behaving in a certain way at first, it's difficult because it wants to go down the well-trodden pathway, but the less and less you use it, I mean, I like the analogy of if you think about a car driving down a piece of grass and it drives down every day and every day, every day, eventually a track will, will develop. <coughs> but then you decide, I'm not going to go down that way anymore. I want to go this way. And a new track will develop and eventually the grass will grow over the old track. Now your neural pathways in your brain are similar will never completely disappear. You'll probably always be able to see once upon a time, maybe that was used as a track, mm -hmm. but it will be really, really grown over. Um, and so, you know, it is the old saying, literally, practice makes perfect. So, you know, if you practice thinking differently and become very conscious and aware of your thinking, I mean, that is the first step. And then moving your attention you know, where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection will grow. And so, you know, that's that you will rewire your brain in a new way. And is there usually like a time period where this happens? So I, I, I love this fact, like I've gone through my, that myself as far as like rewiring and starting to think and smash old beliefs and all of these things here. So do you usually see like a, a time limit that do, or not limit necessarily, but from me stepping in the door to, to you, uh, and let's say I'm, uh, I have a lot of friends that went to war, right? Yeah. That, that went yeah. To, 
So do you usually, can you see like, is this months on end or is there no real rhyme or reason for that? And it's all individual as well as often walk through the door. No, I mean, I think if, it, if you're talking about trauma, that can be quite fast and helping someone get over a, a trauma. <clears throat> when it comes to um, things like limiting beliefs and uh, rewiring mm. the brain, that takes longer. You know, the trauma thing is different because you are very much about doing a technique to, it's not necessarily about rewiring the brain. It's about moving where the memory has been lodged by mistake. So that can happen quite quickly mm -hmm. about helping. It's not about rewiring the brain, if you know what I mean. It's yeah, more it's about moving something yeah. um, and scrambling a pattern that's been there. Yeah. But rewiring the brain, yes, that does take longer. Um, but it's also about how much effort you put in. And it's also about being how aware you are from the start of what some of your limiting beliefs are. So I would say a good start for anybody would be if you are trying to manifest something in your life, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like maybe it's a very successful career or money or whatever it may be, and you have been at it and you are unable to do it, you know for sure there is a limiting belief stopping you. There's something that is stopping you from achieving that. And so, you know, it's about drilling back down and to finding what those core beliefs are. And often it comes down to, for me, the way I work is about feelings. So when we, because you want to find the memory that's done the conditioning and done the programming, because it's always, it's always attached to something someone told you or something sometimes it's obvious because you remember or your mother always used to say this or your father sometimes it's not it can be just one thing and somehow it's stuck like glue in your head you know once upon time I don't know you were singing at the top of your voice and someone at you were at school and someone said to you oh don't do that you've got a terrible voice for the rest of your life that's it then you said it once that's it you've got a terrible voice you can't sing but actually you probably can sing you know, but, you know, at other times it's like it's a continuous thing. Your mum always said something to you. So it's not necessarily that you even remember what the thing is, but it's if you, you certainly have the feeling. It's like maybe I've always had a feeling like I don't quite fit in or I don't whatever. So it's drilling down to what is that feeling? What memory is the source of those? And it's not necessarily. So sometimes if someone is, experiences a lot of anger, and you drill down to what the anger, where the source of the anger is, often the memory's got nothing to do with anger, sometimes a lot to do with sadness or pain or something mm. that was really sad or painful that happened. Um, and so that's a good way of, of getting back to where some of this conditioning that we took on these beliefs is really connecting to the emotions and finding where that feeling originates from. Nice. Um, yeah. No, I like that. So have you seen yourself as far as when you changed your career over uh, or changed into this, have you seen like big changes in your own kind of success criteria? And as far as like, are you feeling more happy now than you ever did? Or is it kind of like just it's the same difference for you? Yeah, it's I mean, I definitely feel um, much more I'm I'm doing what I want. I feel much more in control. And, and you know, that once this again, it goes back down to the you know, emotional needs, I didn't necessarily feel so much in control of what I was doing. So I feel much more aware of if things, you know, you can't take um, fulfillment and happiness for granted, you know, because yeah. 
whatever happens, there's always going to be something in your life that's going to come your way. You know, a pet could die, a parent could, you know, anything that's going to, but you need to have the resilience and the ability to, to, to cope when life throws you some hard curveballs. And so I'm very aware of seeing now and being aware of, of what these emotional needs are. And, and often I need to, well, not often, but I do have to sort of every now and then do filling. I've got a little form to check it and I have to fill it in sometimes and just check where I am on some of them. Actually, that's not being met very well. I need to work on that area. You can't take um, a content, happy, fulfilled life for granted. Even if you were experiencing it two years ago, doesn't mean that you're going to be now because something mm. might have changed. So it's always been aware of what those things are. And so because I'm more aware of it, I find it much easier when things do slip to be able to rectify it and, and make it good. And sometimes it takes longer anyway. If you go through a particular stressful period where there's things happening like a sick parent or whatever, it has to run its course. You're not going to be feeling great while that's happening, but you perhaps have the resilience to be able to cope with it better. Yeah. So, okay, let me, the next question, I'm going to see if I can formulate it and see if you, it's okay if you don't get it, because I'm trying to, as we go along here, so often what we see with these kind of things with anxious people and whatnot is that they walk this fine line where they're not really, they're aware that there's something going on and they'll be like self-conscious enough to go like, oh, I, I would never be able to get on stage and talk in front of people. I always yes. feel anxious when I talk, whatever it is. Is there something you could say to them that could help them? figure out if they actually would benefit from talking to somebody of the likes of yourself, some questions or anything to see, like just if they were being honest with themselves, what would you advise them to ask themselves? Uh, to, to see if they could, if they could be helped. It, it also, in all, yeah, I think a lot of people are blind to the fact that like, so Neil is an example. We had one of yeah. our earlier when Neil was in his old, uh, old job, you, Neil physically got sick, right? Neil, correct me if I'm wrong, before you actually figured out, like, I need to change this, which we see a lot of people get to that, like, insane, like, they actually get physically ill before they go, like, okay, maybe mm. it's time for me to change it. Is there some sort of warning things where you said, like, people should ask themselves this before uh, they get to that degree of, of illness? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's quite hard because sometimes it becomes their new normal, doesn't it? So they wake up and they they, they talk 100 miles an hour. This, that just becomes their new normal. So sometimes it's difficult to um, for people to become aware um, of, of where they are. But I would say, you know, <clears throat> if, if, if people aren't feeling sort of fulfilled or they're not feeling sort of, or they do have sort of anxious thoughts or they find sometimes that they're panicky or whatever, it's to know that they don't have to live with that. They, 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 mm. they, they don't have to accept that as being normal. And I think this is the problem is that a lot of people just accept that this is just not who they are. They are and they don't realize that there are ways of changing it. So I would say that you know, the advice to anybody is that, you know, if they're not feeling um, 100% in terms of sort of their, their, their mental health or, or, or their, their sort of fulfillment in life, you can change it. You know, you, you, you can change it. There are people out there that can help you do that. Um, and sometimes it's just about, you know, another person, even it's just when you speak it out and you tell somebody how you're feeling, Sometimes that in itself, when it gets out of your own head, because otherwise it's just thoughts pinging around your head. Sometimes when you write it out, write out what you're feeling, you know, mm -hmm. um, and when you see it, you, even, you know, in black and white, you go, okay, yeah, perhaps that's not, that's not that normal, these things I'm feeling. But when it's going around your head, so I would think, you know, that's a good way is to write out how you're feeling. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, any you know, it, it can all be changed. There's, there's, and I think this is the problem. People don't realise all the help that is out there. So I think one thing we've discussed recently was that there's a lot of kind of anxiety groups and phobia groups and all of this side of things. Um, and I think, I think we've had a different dis difference of opinion on some of it. Sometimes it can work because, as you say, writing things out, saying it can help. But on the other hand, I see a lot of people where they'll say something. Other people go, oh, yeah, I do that too. And then they just sort of go, OK, that's normal then. Mm. So I, I don't know how to combat something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's not to, it's it's. Yeah, it's just sort of like not normalizing it. So I think that's the problem, isn't it? Is that when other people say that they are experiencing it. I think this is the this is the problem is that sometimes it's not necessarily helpful, is it? So you get these groups that are then um, you know gathering and almost sort of like um, allowing each other. It's sort of like it's like bad behavior, isn't it? It's sort of mm -hmm. like you could live in a family where someone does something and if the family will back you up even though society are going that's not a good way to behave it becomes like acceptable so as much as the groups are good for support sometimes actually it's a bit of a hindrance I mean I think you know I'm not saying what's not good is going over and over and over stuff so when I say write something down it's perhaps just to get it out of your head the ones it's not just sort of when you are reliving stuff and you keep on talking about stuff you're actually embedding all that stuff deeper then actually potentially making it worse so i don't know i mean i think the support groups are, are great in some ways but i think you people need to be careful as well because you could just almost sort of make be making it worse where oh yeah okay well that's acceptable you also experience that oh okay so this is normal no it's not normal so there's a lot of you experiencing it you know what? It's a, it, this one is a, maybe a bit uh, like it, this is a tough one, I'll say. So I've joined a few of those on Facebook just to actually take a, a peek at it and see kind of what, what was the level of it from friends and family and the, the ways I've been feeling myself. I'll say one thing that was staggering was to see, and this seemed to be predominantly a North American issue, but as far as like the medicine also that's out there that people will fill themselves with, what's without like putting you too much on the spot, but what's your stance on that? Uh, and I can just to help you say like, for me, I'm not a fan at all. It seemed like very no. detrimental to the whole thing and you don't. Yeah. No, so so um, not a when I don't push drugs at all. So I'll, um, the, as I say, the, the school of psychotherapy, their approach and their idea is to try and be as drug free as possible. Mm. The other thing is, is that a lot of the, a lot of the, the techniques don't really work when people are on things like Prozac and stuff like that, because you can't actually get through properly to what they're feeling and the emotions because they're slightly shut down. Yeah. So it's actually harder to do the deeper work. And it's not either to say if somebody be, has been on an antidepressant for, I don't know, 10 years to go, that's it, come off, yeah. because you need to be very careful. They need to be weaned off properly. So it's not just to say that's it, come off the drugs. Um, but at the same time, there are many things that you can do naturally. So there's, there's studies that show, um, you know, with depression and stuff like that, how just by doing some exercise and things like that, it can also increase the serotonin in your brain and stuff like that. So it can work just as well as a antidepressant. Yeah. Um, and so the way... Uh, the, the my approach is is that if all your um, besides if there's trauma, of course you need to rectify that first. But 
if all your emotional needs are being met really well, your fundamental emotional needs get met, and this is the crux of the whole approach, you will not be suffering with a mental health problem. You will not be suffering with depression, anxiety, whatever. If all of those emotional needs are being met well, then you shouldn't be having a mental health issue. And so the other issue, of course, is, is, is sleep and stuff like that, because that's going to cause depression. And so... You know, it's a it's a quick fix, isn't it? And I'm not saying I'm not saying that drugs are never ever um, you know useful, but it shouldn't be the go-to. No, it's you know it's it shouldn't be the go-to. It's in in worse than I think things like bipolar and stuff. There's always cases where it is necessary, but I think I think it's become so normal. It's just gets handed out. It's just, I mean, not so much. I wouldn't say as much in the UK. I think it's harder to to get. I mean, you, of course you can, but I think certainly in South Africa, and I think South Africa is pretty similar to this to America because the um, medical stuff is all privatized, so it's a business. Mm. And so I think when it becomes a business, it's it, things on. Yeah, I mean, it's, you can go and get anything you want because it's all private and so um i think they're much more drug heavy in south africa as well so like you know the kid just shows one little bit of problem with attention and they're on ritalin before you know it you know what i mean whereas in the uk i think that's much true i mean it's not to say that you can't go private and get it but once again that also then comes down to you need to be able to afford all of that in the uk whereas most people are probably doing the nhs um you know, so whereas in South Africa, it's not everything is private. It's all, you know, it's all big business, basically. And so they're much more drug happy, yeah. you know. I mean, I think on all of the um, American TV and films, pretty much every mum in the shows have Prozac. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And all the kids are on attention deficit uh, drugs, you know, yeah. the smallest thing. I mean, I know in South Africa, it's it's. All those kids, I mean, they they do not have attention deficits. They just want to do better in their exams. And so they all get prescribed, you know, uh, uh, Ritalin or whatever it may be, you know. Yeah. Um, I I think the way I see it is if you've, like, got a knee injury and you're on painkillers, it masks the injury so you don't notice it. So you're more likely to damage it more. Yes. Because you're not paying attention to it. Absolutely. And I, and I mean, the thing is, is that there's so many side effects. So, you know, so serotonin, which is one of the neurotransmitters in the brain, which is a, is a like cause, you know, it's a, it's a happy chemical, if you like. Um, most of, so, so the antidepressants of, uh, often stimulate the production of serotonin. Um, but actually a lot of them, I'd say, I think it's about 80%, something like that, 70 to 80% of the serotonin actually is in your GI tract. And so a lot of people who are taking antidepressants then start having digestive issues um, because that's the thing. As soon as you start taking a drug, and that goes for anything, not just mental health stuff, you start to throw the balance of your body out in another way. You know, and your body is constantly trying to balance itself out. And mm-hmm. um, so, so does that also mean that if you're taking a drug to produce more of it, Will your body try and balance that out to so start producing, trying to produce less? So when you come off the drug, would you be producing less than you were originally? Well, I think it would just, well, the, the idea is, is that it helps you because they're saying that you're not producing it. So, but there's no evidence 
to show which one comes first. And so um, there's a lot of data that shows or studies that show that when you go into depression, then your serotonin levels will drop. So is it the depression that's causing the serotonin to drop or is it the lack of serotonin? Because people say, oh, it's a chemical condition. I've got a, it's a chemical imbalance. Mm. Or is it, or has the depression caused the chemical imbalance? So it's a bit of a chicken and egg and there's no, they can't, they, they, they can't say that it is. Oh, well, it's because you've got lower serotonin because the, the depression causes it anyway. So in theory, it would go back when you go and come off the drugs, it should go back to the same thing because you need the drugs to help you produce it. Um, but if you've got all your other things in place for your life, then those things should be produced naturally. You know, that's probably not been produced because you have sunk into depression, um, you know, because you're not getting a lot of emotional needs met in your life. Or you've got trauma, you know? It's, it's that weird no-undoing gap. Like me and Neil discussed that before. Like, so for myself, I've, I've changed a lot of habits that I have just had to come to terms with were bad habits. Uh, I knew the whole time, right, Colleen, they were bad habits. I knew that, but I, I let it slide. And I, tomorrow was always a new day. Until finally recently broke it and that's this podcast as a part of it of just venturing out there and, and putting yourself out there and seeing what, what will come of it and meeting people like yourself. But like for me now, I wake up, I take an hour or I walk a kilometer every morning as I get out of bed, right? Uh, started running and all these things that even for years we've been hearing many people and experts say like, as you say here as well, exercise and these kind of things. And you'll, you'll, you'll find yourself just going like, yeah, I know, I know I'm supposed to do this, yes. but I'm not doing it. And I can I can definitely say that to just co-sign to what you're saying that once I started doing these things, I had to uh, to to eat it up and be like, yeah, they were right as yeah. easy as it was to just actually do these things, uh, and it's had such a, a positive impact. So I hope that that message comes through to people. Like, it is yeah. very simple to just begin. Don't don't try to like climb a mountain from the get go. Like, start small with changing your habits. And I can imagine that's what you're you're practicing as well with your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Just do something that is in your um, that 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 you feel you can tackle. So that is that you know, especially if someone's coming to me and they're really depressed, you go, okay, well, let's agree on one thing that you can do. You know, you just let's do one thing at a time. The other thing that is um, incredibly powerful, which people don't realize, well, they do, but, you know, they're sitting on a, an amazingly powerful tool that people just don't use enough, is your imagination. Your imagination is probably the most powerful thing you have. I mean, the habits are great, and, you know, it's, it's, it's about implementing those habits and creating new habits and just, you know, it's like, you know, we know what's good for us to eat, but we still want fast food sometimes. We know it's not going to be good for us. And it's the same as thoughts and behaviors. We know it's not going to be good for us, but, oh, you know, it's easier. Um, but the imagination is so powerful. So, you know, a lot of sports people, they, they you know, we, we call it different things. Sports people call it mental rehearsal. And, you know, um, I think, uh, what's his name? The singer, the not the singer, the swimmer, Phelps, he yeah. kind of was on record saying that, he felt visualization, you know, mental rehearsal and visualization, you know, um, helped enormously to his success. And what we know about the brain in, is that parts of your unconscious brain do not know the difference between reality and your imagination. Um, so that's because your imagination actually evolved after the things like the flight and fight response and all of that. And so that's why you're able to turn on your flight and fight just by thinking certain things and imagining certain things. It's very powerful. 
And also there's been studies showing how when you when you do something like visualize something, it can grow the same neural networks in your brain. So they did studies with people doing piano exercises. One group physically practiced it for three weeks. The other just had to imagine doing it. And when they looked at the neural maps, the same neural circuits had been created. And so if you keep on imagining something awful happening, your part of your primitive brain thinks it's happened. So if you keep on imagining that, presentation at work going badly well you've probably presented it really badly probably 20 times but if you use your imagination to sit and just close your eyes just imagine the presentation going like you want maybe you do fall over a word or two but you save it and you come back because it's also about it being realistic you know as mm-hmm. well but then the more you do that and rehearse it and rehearse it the more the unconscious part of your brain that primitive part thinks oh, what's the problem? I've already done it 20 times perfectly. So when you walk into doing it, it feels calmer. And so, you know, that's the other thing is using your imagination in a really positive way and doing mental rehearsal and doing visualization. Um, We're sitting on this amazing tool and people just don't use it. Um, And that's what I do a lot with my clients. We use visualization a lot. And we do not do a session without a visualization happening. So if you are feeling depressed and you think, I just cannot get to the swimming pool to do that swim because my therapist has told me I need to go swimming this week. I just can't do it. We do a visualization of getting them to see themselves going to the pool, everything that goes involved, the whole visualization, they get up, they get their trunks ready, they get everything and they get to the pool. And then the feelings that they have, we visualize the whole thing. Um, And it generally helps them in order for them to actually go and do the thing the next week. Um, Because they've, they've already kind of done it in their brain. It hasn't been that bad. They've done it. And actually they felt good. And I love that. Like, uh, you've, if you were to see our episodes, this is music to my ears. Uh, in that sense, it's and it is interesting, as you say. Like most people gravitate towards visualizing the bad thing that once happens, and then they keep remembering that instead of, of just trying to go like, how can it look if it actually went the best way possible for you? Yeah. Uh, so, so I love hearing that. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up a little bit now. Yeah. I feel like you've you've given some amazing tips. <laughs> I've absolutely loved this here. Um, I always love asking this question here. Is there something that you would love to answer that we, you've never gotten asked? Um, do you know what? I, 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 I'm quite new to doing any of these interviews or anything like this. And so there probably hasn't been 